Welcome to the At the Castle Bible Teaching Podcast. Our goal is to dive deep into the Word of God and uncover its timeless truths and teachings. At the Castle, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God, and we seek to understand and apply it to our lives. During ATC Winter Weekend 2022 we were joined by Andrew Sack, who helped us to explore the Gospel of Mark. For more information about At the Castle, please check out our website, www.atthecastle.org.uk or find us via our social media. We hope that through this podcast, you'll grow in your knowledge and love of God's Word and be equipped to live out your faith more fully. Well, good morning. And well done for paying attention so closely for... Oh, I haven't got my screen yet, hang on. Um, paying attention so closely for the whole weekend. We've been doing, being quite ambitious in terms of how much we cover. And I'm, it's been great to see no one really yawning or nodding off. Um, in contrast to my dog, I just thought you'd enjoy this. <laughs> this is in a Bible study a couple of weeks ago. And this is not the attitude to God's word that we encourage. <laughs> anyway, there we are. That's just gratuitous, cute photo. Um, So one of the things we're trying to do um, this weekend is understand the words of Jesus, but also to understand how to understand the words of Jesus. And I've been trying to share some Bible reading tips. And so far, we've had a few principles, and I wonder if we can remember what any of them are. So not just things from Mark, but things about how to read Mark or how to read a Bible passage in general and get more out of it. Anyone remember? Yeah, exactly. Just keep reading over the same thing. And why not? I, I mean, I hope I've persuaded you of that, but why not start actually doing it? So start this week. Work out what's going to be midweek in the church Bible study. And start reading it a couple of days before, and you'll find loads more benefit. Great. Anything else? Okay, so not only can we not trust a verse out of the context of a paragraph, but we can't really understand a paragraph out of the context of a chapter or a chapter out of the context of a book. Now, this is going to make it very difficult. If you're, if you're going to be in different passages every week, it's going to be almost impossible to do that because how, how can you possibly process the whole context every time? You know, if I'm in Jeremiah one week and have to read all of Jeremiah and then next week I'm in Numbers, have to read the whole of Numbers, and you know, it gets pretty ambitious. This is one of the reasons why it's so good to do series through books um, where you do the whole thing or a whole section of a book because the context is kind of built into the way that you read it and everybody knows what it said in Mark chapter 7 because everyone was here two weeks ago. So that, that can really, really help. Yeah, so read widely, read again. Anything else? So things that Mark particularly cares about, he might just make sure you notice. And things he doesn't care about, he doesn't say. So we're trying to focus on the things that the author focuses on. And when Mark says he was in the wilderness, 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 you get, okay, I get it, this is important to you. So why is he saying most about the things he says most about? Whereas if we got a question that the text doesn't answer, it's just the wrong question. It's just not what Mark was trying to tell us. Yeah, that's good. Brilliant, yeah. So 
Mark's emphasis rather than my, Mark's interpretation of the facts rather than my interpretation of the facts because Mark's inspired by the Holy Spirit so he has an advantage. So let's follow his lessons, yeah. Um, and then things like structure. So we've seen lots has fitted together just because of the way it's bookended and often the way Mark's done it is just to juxtapose things, to collect things together or sometimes to put things in brackets. By the sea, follow me. By the, oh, so you have to go this way around, haven't I, for you guys? By the sea, follow me. By the sea, follow me. And then in one layer, authority in Capernaum, authority in Capernaum. And it helps you to see all that's going on. Or feeding of the 5,000. It's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Yeah, can I have any crumbs, please? Feeding of the 4,000. Often it's these structures that are giving us the, the point. Yep. Something about linking words. When you see the word... Therefore, what is it there for? And words like because. For, they didn't understand about the loaves. You can't understand that verse without the previous verse. They were astonished at Jesus walking on water because they didn't understand about the loaves. So always look out for the becauses, the therefores. Okay, so various little tips. And the other thing we're trying to do is increase familiarity. And, of course, there's another test. I've been thinking last night, what could I do for the last test? Okay, we looked at ways in which the Old Testament predicts Jesus, the whole Exodus thing. How about the ways that Jesus predicts Jesus? So can you think of as many places as you can in Mark's Gospel where Jesus predicts what is going to happen next? And there's quite a few of them, actually. So places where Jesus predicts what's about to happen in Mark's Gospel. And turn to your neighbor and see how you do. Okay, let's be back. I haven't got a definitive list of answers, so I'm going to have to, we'll have to evaluate them together and check if they're actually there. But anyone suggest something Jesus predicts that then happens in Mark's <coughs> Gospel? Yeah, okay, that's good. That's the first, I think, yeah. The days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken and they will fast in that day. Yeah, although I don't think we hear, hear about them fasting in that day, but it kind of, yeah, certainly the bargain was taken. Yeah. Well, interestingly, they accuse him of that in Mark. They said, he's the one who said, yeah. But you don't get the explanation that he's talking about his own body, which you get in John. So I think that's half a Mark, yeah. <laughs> people, are deliber- people are deliberately... People are deliberately going for the obscure ones, which is fine, but there's some really obvious ones as well. He says the Son of Man will be killed. Okay, there we are. Thank you. And he says that how many times? Three. Three times. The Son of Man will be killed and three days later he'll rise. And the, the prediction actually gets longer and more extensive each time. So it, the first one, let's just actually follow them just to get it in our heads. The point of these quizzes isn't just for fun, it's just to get us into the... The topic, but so 8:31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Um, and then you get the same thing in chapter 9, verse 31: the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he's killed, after three days he'll rise. 
And then you get the same thing again in chapter 10, verse 33. See, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days he'll rise. So it kind of gets stronger and more detailed as we go through. So that, that's predicted. Anything else? Okay, then uh, today's passage. That's interesting, isn't it? When is that fulfilled? Some of you will see the kingdom of God before you die. Oh, I wonder when that is. We'll come back to that. Good. Yes, before the cock will crow twice, you will deny me three times. And then Peter does, and then the cock will. Um, actually, chillingly, the cock will crow the first time after the first denial, which is like the real warning. Peter keeps going, two more, and then second, second cockerel. Yeah, um, any others? People will fast about the donkey being taken. Say again? People will fast about the donkey being taken. Okay, yeah, thank you. You'll go and find a cult tied up, and you'll say, oh, I need this, and then they'll let you have it, which they do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that hasn't happened yet, but yes, that is a promise about the future. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. Nothing is secret except to be made known. Um, yeah. And then strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, uh, which is um, which happens. And... Uh, Judas's portrayal is that in Mark? I'm now questioning myself. I'm playing tricks on myself. I think it must be, wasn't it? I don't know. To check that. Okay, lots of times. Well, here's the maybe the biggest one, the threefold one. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Not just will, but must. It's necessary that, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days. Whereas again, this doesn't compute for Peter. And, I mean, it kind of makes sense that it, he finds it a struggle because he understands the title Son of Man properly. <coughs> so he's, he's not just saying, I'm going to be killed. It's saying, the Son of Man is going to be killed. And that's, that's what creates a sort of mental block for Peter because it's like those two words don't really go in the same sentence. It's like saying celebration and terrorist bomb in the same sentence. They, just, they don't fit together. Because Son of Man, if you, if you know the title Son of Man, it's from Daniel chapter 7. It's this promise of a king who's um, actually really like a divine king. He, a king with whom God shares everything that he doesn't share. What won't God share? He won't share his glory because he's the only God first commandment but yet he does share his glory with this king what won't God share he won't share his the obedience of all the nations but he does share the obedience of all the nations with this king so it's kind of like a it's a trinitarian promise really of a divine king a king with whom God the father shares everything I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days. He was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. It sounds like God, and it is God. God the Father gives to his king all of this honor. And they kind of amazingly have realized for the first time in, what, some years now of time with Jesus that you are the Christ. This is the Messiah. And Jesus doubles down on it. Yeah, I'm the son of man. And he's actually used that title before, but they seem not to have picked it up. Maybe they just meant I'm a human being. And now they go, oh, you're the son of man. Okay. And I'm going to be killed. What? No, no, the son of man is the one who everyone's going to serve. He's, he's, the, he's the kingdom that replaces all the other kingdoms in, in Daniel, that crushes all the beasts, that is the universal Lord forever. He can't be killed, Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. And then comes, and this is what I want to focus on today, This then comes this invitation to us, to everybody. Verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Maybe you've heard of the advert placed in the newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Um, it's supposedly that advert for Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic um, expedition. And um, unfortunately, I've been able to find no references to this famous advert outside of Christian sermons, which makes me slightly wonder, and I've done quite a lot of research trying to find it, which makes me wonder if it is actually apocryphal. But however, even if made up by a preacher, it's the kind of advert that would have been a good advert for Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic expedition, because it was a, a brutal expedition. I mean, even if we don't know that was his advert, we do know the name of his ship, HMS Endurance, well chosen. And they set sail for South Georgia, um, and unfortunately, uh, they got stuck in the ice because the sea froze around them. That was the first sign of things going not entirely according to plan. The trouble with, with water when it expands, um, so when it freezes, is it expands. So not only did they get sort of stuck in the ice, but then as the ice expanded, it literally cracked the ship. And that was okay because it was frozen, but it wasn't going to be okay when the ice melted. So, you know, from hoping for spring, they're sort of dreading spring. And then spring comes and the ice melts and the ship begins to sink and they have to decamp onto an ice flow. And then the ice flow gets smaller and smaller because it melts and then they have to get into a lifeboat. Lifeboats are okay for temporary escapes. They're not really good for trying to travel 380 nautical miles, which is how much they got left to get to safety. So um, they try and make the trip on this 380 mile trip in a lifeboat. And they get to the place where the whaling station is where they can get help. But unfortunately they arrive at the wrong side of the island um, which means that in order to get to safety, they have to scale some ice cliffs that have not been climbed before, the sort that you might find on the sort of approach to Everest, and then safety the other side, and not all of them make it. 
So, I mean, I don't know if that was the advert, but if it was the advert, there was a, there'd be a kind of realism about it. Like, we don't want people who just want a holiday in the South Pacific here. It's the kind of advert that you think, surely that's going to discourage quite a lot of potential applicants. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. Don't join up unless, you have a, unless you've got what it takes, unless you have a sense of what's ahead. Well... As I say, maybe the advert is apocryphal, even if the mission wasn't. But Jesus' advert isn't apocryphal. This is what he really said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, herself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, we don't really get the sense of this in the 21st century because for us, the expression, take up your cross, just means to do something moderately unpleasant. You know, like, it's your turn to take the bins out. And then we go, well, you know, everyone's got their cross to bear. It's just become a sort of expression in English for a moderately difficult or unpleasant task. But of course, in the first century, if we try and hear it as it would have been heard by these crowds, if you saw someone carrying a cross, it meant they were on death row. I mean, you, the Romans made you carry your cross to the place where they then executed you on it. So to see someone carrying a cross meant it would be the equivalent of, if just to update the metaphor... If anyone would come after me, let him strap himself into his electric chair and follow me. Or let him fasten the hangman's noose around his neck and then follow me. I mean, it's, it's actually a very shocking invitation. Because taking out your cross means come and die. Put yourself on death ray. Be at risk of martyrdom. And we know that because of the next sentence. If you think I'm, I've mis misread it, but Jesus confirms it in verse 35. Take up his cross means, verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that's what he means by take up your cross. So die. Come and die, says Jesus. Any takers? Any, anyone's welcome if you want to come and die. Um, you can die with me and I'll, I'll have you in my team of people who die. Anyone up for it? And very surprisingly, some people are. And I want us to think today about why that is. Why such a daunting invitation gets any takers at all. Um, and what I'm, I'm going to get you to do is um, look at these verses, 31 to 38, and just see if you can see how they're structured. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that there are two halves. So you kind of got... Something about Jesus here, and then something about disciples below. So it's kind of, that's I'll give you that for free. That's pretty obvious. Two paragraphs. But my question is, um, what is the connection between the paragraphs? So turn to your neighbour, see if you can find it out.
Okay, what are the connections between these paragraphs? Anyone <coughs> want to suggest? Suffering? Can you say more? I mean, I agree. I agree there's... There's definitely suffering in both. Suffering of whom? So, okay, so the first paragraph is about Jesus. And the second paragraph is about disciples. What does the word disciple mean? Followers. Followers. And unsurprisingly, the disciples follow what Jesus does. So we're not surprised to see the pattern being the same, because that's what the word means. Yeah, if anyone wants to follow me, let him follow me. Okay, yeah, so there's a connection. Do you want to say what that connection is? Anyone else? Say again. Laying aside your life. Um, yeah, or dying. Yeah, laying aside your life. So Jesus is going to be killed, and you are going to be killed. Loses his life. Okay, so you get killed. That's the same. So Jesus got killed, you get killed. That's a connection. So something about Peter's attitude and the world's attitude, maybe. Yeah, that 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 could be that could be a subtle one. Let's just stick on the be killed, be killed thing for now, because that's a parallel, and of course it is a parallel because Jesus was killed, and then many early Christians were killed, and some Christians today are killed. So, sort of martyrdom is um, similar to what happened to Jesus. Um, if I told you there's a paragraph about Jesus. And there's a paragraph about his disciples, and one of them is about dying on a cross. Which paragraph would you assume it was? The Jesus paragraph, right? But interestingly, the reference to dying on a cross is in the second paragraph. Who let him take up his cross and follow me. Now that's kind of interesting to me because um, the first two martyrs recorded in the Bible do not die by crucifixion. There's a tradition that um, uh, Peter's going to die that way um, and a hint at that in the end of John. But the martyrs that we've got in, the, in Acts die by how? Stoning and the sword. Yeah, exactly. But Jesus calls it taking up your cross, being crucified. Like, why, why call martyrdom crucifixion when it isn't always crucifixion? I think it's, it's precisely to emphasize the connection. You are going to die like I die. It's going to be your equivalent of my death. And the Apostle Paul, who didn't die by crucifixion, also says, doesn't he, in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. So take up your cross, even though literally most of them won't do that. Are they? And Peter's going to have to die in a, that kind of way, perhaps. Okay, be killed, that's in the same. What else is the same in terms of what happens to them? It kind of goes with Jesus' death. Resurrection. I mean, Jesus dies, and then after three days he rises. What about Christians? Sorry, someone's saying the correct answer, but quietly. They'll save their life. Yeah, that's what he means. Whoever wants... 
Whoever loses his life will save it. So th- this is basically the, the, the pattern that Jesus says that he dies and then is raised and Christians die and then are raised. It's exactly the same thing. And so why would you follow Jesus to die? Well, if you want to follow Jesus to be raised. Like if, if Jesus died and that was it, if there was no resurrection, you'd be mad to be a disciple. He wants to just follow someone on a death pact. Sounds like one of those crazy cults. Well, let's all die together. No, Jesus isn't saying let's die. He's saying the route to life is via death. That's the key thing to understand. He's not just the cross. It's the cross followed by the resurrection. And in fact, the only way to get to the resurrection is via the cross. Or to put it another way, the only way to get to glory is through the cross. Because when Peter struggled to do the sort of son of man and die thing, he couldn't fit the two together in his head, he was kind of right about the son of man stuff. It's not that Jesus is disagreeing with Daniel chapter 7 and sort of redefining. You know how you thought the son of man was going to be the one who had an everlasting dominion? No, no, I'm sorry. I actually want to revise it. He actually dies. Now, Jesus totally agrees with Daniel 7. He just says... He dies first, and then all the stuff you're expecting from Daniel 7. In fact, even in this paragraph, where's the Daniel 7 bit of it? The Son of Man. Yeah, the verse 38. 38 sounds very like Daniel 7. <laughs> Jesus coming with the glory of the Father. He's the one who's given glory and power and the kingdom that everyone should worship him. Well, that, that's coming. It's still, that's still on the table, Peter. I haven't, I haven't cancelled the glory bit. I'm just telling you that before the glory bit comes crucifixion. Jesus says he will be killed and after three days he'll rise again and then he will come in glory with the Father and the holy angels. And if you want to be a follower, you've got to go the same way. Okay, that's why you do it. You do it if you got convinced about Jesus doing it. And you won't do it if you're not thinking about what Jesus did. So um, here's a little diagram. And it's pretty simple. There's a choice between now and later. And there's two different ways. Sorry, I don't like this. There's two different ways you can do it. So you can either save your life now. In which case, later you will lose your life. Or you can lose your life now. In which case, later you will save your life. Those are the, those are the options. Let's just cut, cut this in. Whoops. Okay, so... Um, And then this one, the lose your life to save your life one, is the, the way that Jesus went. So Jesus took, Jesus took this route. But you've got a choice about which route you take. So do you want to go the Jesus way or the other way? You can pick. Now, um, this is why I find this such an amazing illustration. Which do you want to choose? Do you want to die or do you want to live? Well, I, obviously I want to live. <laughs> like, well, it just depends on the time scale, though, doesn't it? 
right? Because do you want to live for a brief while, you know, say 70 years or something, like really briefly, and then be lost forever, forfeiting your life? Or do you mind a little bit of hardship, you know, in the short term for the sake of living forever in glory? Well, put like that, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's obviously better, obviously better to take the green route. And Jesus keeps saying that, doesn't he? What, you know, what would be the point of having the whole world and then forfeiting your life? And let's imagine you get the best degree at Queen's Belfast. And the best degree gets you the best job, which means you can afford the best car and the best house with the best view. Maybe in a castle. Maybe you could build a castle. And you get the best holidays and have the best children who go to the best schools and get the best results so that they too can have the best house with the best view. And you have the best retirement, you play the best golf, and you have the best funeral with the best coffin. And Jesus, what's the point? Like to have ever to gain the whole world. I mean, you could, you know, you can. He's not saying without being a Christian, you can't have a good time. You totally, he actually grants, you can have a really good time without being a Christian. In fact, for the sake of argument, you could gain the whole world. Imagine having everything, being like the most successful person. Imagine this. Yeah, except that then it leads to that. What's the point of it then? What could you ever give back in exchange for the life that you've lost? Nothing. Or you could lose your life, which sounds pretty unpleasant, to be honest. But then afterwards, you save your life. Well, it's, it's pretty obvious that this is the better way, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's kind of clear. But here's the thing. Which one you choose depends entirely whether you take account of the right-hand side of the diagram. Okay, so let, let's imagine, I'm just going to move this across, so that, that doesn't exist. Which would you prefer? Would you like to live or, to, or die? Oh, live, please. <laughs> would you like to follow Jesus then? No, thanks. Because following Jesus is going to mean... I mean, in some countries, death. In England, social death. Probably in Northern Ireland, you know, approximating social death. Why, why would I do that? Like, why would I lose things if I could choose to gain things? No-brainer. Except if you take into account the future, it's a total no-brainer. Of course, you would lose your life. You see, whether or not you will go the way of the cross depends entirely whether you believe in the resurrection. It's kind of obvious when I put it like that, isn't it? But if we consider this life only, now only, no one in their right mind will be a Christian. I mean, maybe you could be a Christian in Northern Ireland because it's such an unusual place where being a Christian is not unpleasant particularly. But globally, that isn't true. And throughout history, that's not true. I mentioned yesterday the three um, Persian brothers in our church who've become Christians and it meant fleeing saying goodbye to family, never to see again, probably. It meant scary boat trips across the sea, you know, all sorts of... I, don't, I haven't even asked them the details because I think it's just horrific to be a Christian. It's quite costly. Do you want to follow Jesus? And everything in your... Well, lots of things in your life will get much worse. But in the end, glory. So um, I guess, you know, we're Christians. We believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. But how much do you believe in Jesus' resurrection? How much do you believe in Jesus' return in glory? 
how much are you sure that there's a day when it doesn't matter really whether you suffered here um, because of the, the welcome that you receive? Or how much are we conscious where the, the life that here looks so good is on the last day so disappointing because everything is forfeited? It's a terrible word that, isn't it? To forfeit yourself. Where the Lord Jesus is ashamed of you. I don't know this person, he says. Uh, and I feel a bit embarrassed about having to look at them because they pretended that they were mine, but I don't really recognize that. So the future day makes all the difference. And so it's really going to matter that we can be sure about this and that we can be sure about this. Because if these sort of things started to fade from my life, then I'd want this. I don't, know if that, if that's, I don't know if that's true of you. I find that the more I focus on the new creation, the return of Jesus, the idea of meeting him, the judgment day, the less I care if it's been a bad week. <laughs> and the less I'm grumpy about making small sacrifices for Jesus. But the more I live in the here and now, and I'm focusing on just what's going on, the more I'm sort of begrudging of anything it might cost me to be a believer. So is the right hand side of the diagram real? Well, it is real. How do you know? Because Jesus has already gone that way. We keep seeing this argument, don't we, in Mark's Gospel, that we're supposed to trust the future based on the past, based on precedent. How do you know Jesus is really going to clear up the world? Well, look at Capernaum, the little paint shop, paint pot preview of the new creation. How do you know that if you die, you can be raised again? Well, look at Jesus. He was killed and he was risen again. So Mark is never asking you to sort of gamble something on a crazy future. He's saying, just look at the example, the precedent in the past, and then infer the future. Now, um, I want to just, this is the main point for today. I want to just um, consider three um, ways that this might work out in practice, and then two reasons to do it. Three ways it might work out. Now, this is a whole section of Mark's Gospel. So, um, from chapter, whoops, that's a bit big. So, from chapter 8, verse 31, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 52, is a section. Um, and how do we know it's a section? Well, because Mark likes to do sections sometimes with bookends. And so, just before the section he heals um, a blind man and just after the section Jesus heals another blind man and it's kind of I know blind men don't need glasses because they're blind but I can't draw blind men so humor me Um, in between these two um, sections of blind men being healed is this middle section and in this middle section Jesus keeps predicting that he's going to be killed and then that he'll rise again that's meant to be an empty tomb that's just Stone rolled away from a tomb, okay? Says humor me. And then he does it again. And then he does it again. Oops. Three times Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection in this section of Mark. And then three times Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've got to do the same. Whoever loses his life will save it, but whoever saves his life will lose it. That's meant to be this diagram in miniature. Whoever loses his life will save it. Whoever saves his life will lose it. And then he says the same again here. And then he says the same again here. 
So this whole section is about Jesus doing it and then inviting you to do it. Um, and we haven't got time to go into the whole section, but I want to give you a couple of flavors of what it means. Because here, the first one, it means martyrdom. <coughs> like actually losing your life. And of course, some of the early Christians are going to, and some Christians today in the world are killed for their faith. And some, many Christians throughout history have been killed for their faith. That's the first, he means literally take up your cross and follow me. Um, the second time he mentions it, um, in chapter 9, uh, he, he puts it in a different kind of way. Um, so, uh, verse 34, so verse 35 of chapter 9, he sat down with the 12, he said, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus sort of changes the diagram to the first are going to be last and the last are going to be the first. Which way did Jesus go? Well, Jesus was last in order to be first. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So this isn't now about actual death. This is just about serving people. So it's the same principle. It's taking up your cross, but it's in a sort of less literally dying way. But sort of dying to yourself. So being willing to do the grim jobs that no one wants to do, to be a, a servant leader. That, that, that's, that's what it entails. Rather than trying to have everything now, it's just being willing to be low status. And then Jesus explains low status as welcoming children. Um, I don't think it works quite as well now because we sort of idolise children in our society, whereas in the first century society, children were very much ignored. But it kind of still works because... Um, looking after children is quite a thankless task, isn't it? If, if you see a mother, like the, the number of hours of unseen service looking after kids, or if you see a dad, he looks sort of sleepy because he's been up in the night so that his wife can get some sleep to do the nighttime feeds. You go, yeah, that's kind of still quite a good illustration of humble service. You don't get much status for that. So Jesus says, that's the kind of illustration. Try and think of ways where it costs your status and costs your, your luxury, your pleasure, in order to be a servant. Like if you were a nursery nurse or were looking after um, little kids or changing nappies, that, that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the ministering, the quite a large church I used to go to, used to clean the leaves always in the church office. And it was just his way of saying, I'm not above this just because I'm the leader of a large city centre church. Um, and I think that was just quite a good... He wasn't saying this is my Christian service. It was just a little reminder to him that um, he wasn't to get too important. So it means to serve people. The first will be last. The last will be first. It's the same as whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. Um, and then Jesus does another one. So um, uh, towards the end of chapter 10... Chapter 10, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown to hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown to hell. So the diagram here looks like this. I think if we do, it's the same pattern, actually. What are the options? Well, you can either retain limb in which case you get to hell, or you can lose limb, 
and then you go into life. See, it's the same pattern. It's going to cost you now. So fighting sin radically is costly. It hurts to say no to, to temptation in, in a radical way. And Jesus, yeah, but it's better to take the path that costs you now on the way to life than to take the path that's easy now on the way to hell. It's just the same pattern. You see, he keeps kind of different variations on it. It's taking up your cross and follow me. So this is fighting sin, this one. And then there's one more in chapter, beginning of chapter, or middle of chapter 10. Here's the rich man who thinks he's kept all the commandments except he's broken half of them. Jesus says, you know the commandments, don't you? And then quotes five of them. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know the five commandments. He's like, it was a trick question. There's 10 commandments. He doesn't notice this. And then Jesus tests him on the first four commandments. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Because if you do, why don't you give up your wealth and come and follow me? And he goes, I oh, know I can't do that. This is the same thing, isn't it? It's uh, retain wealth and be lost or give up riches and be rewarded. It's the same thing. I mean, in every case, it's a, this is a fighting sin one. This is a being generous one. What I'm trying to show you is that this principle of take out your cross and follow me, it can work out in different areas of life, and you have to work out which one is the, uh, the most significant for you at the moment. Will it mean actual death? I don't think so in Northern Ireland, but for some people in Iran, yes, it does mean that. Uh, will it mean it costs you to be willing to do the job at church that no one wants to do, and you're willing to do it because you want to be a servant? Will it mean it costs you because resisting sin really hurts um, and it, you're not going to enjoy it very much, but it's worth doing um, on the way to life? Will it cost you because you could just live with all your money spent on, your, on yourself, or you could live sacrificially with your money given to um, the needy enter the gospel and in each case Jesus is saying all I'm inviting you to do is to go the same way that I went which means you die now and then the glory and I'm looking at your faces no one looks particularly thrilled about this <laughs> I wish you said, I mean that if it's sobering then that's fair enough but we're now thinking probably Jesus convince me that this is real I've really got to believe in the future if I'm going to do this. You ask him, makes me to gamble my entire life on something that is in the future. Like, um, I, I need to be very sure. And Jesus goes, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll make you sure. Chapter 9. Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. <coughs> after it's come with power. Now, what, what could that be? What, what could this be? The, the kingdom of God coming with power. Well, could it be the second coming? Could Jesus be talking about the day that he comes with his Father's glory and the holy angels? What do people think? Could, verse, could chapter 9, verse 1 be about the second coming of Jesus? Yeah, I mean, everyone's dead by then. Where, all the, you know, the 12 disciples are all dead by then. 
So that doesn't work because Jesus says some of you will not taste death until. So it has to happen within their lifetime. So it can't be the second coming. Uh, could it be the resurrection? Well, n no, I don't think so because almost all of them see the resurrection. Some of you will see. Some standing here will see. Um, whereas all of his disciples see the resurrection. Well, apart from Judas. But to say some of you, it's a bit... Yeah. Weird way. Could be Pentecost. Yeah. Um, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Um, six days later, I, on the seventh day, goes up a mountain. Oh, that's a significant thing to do on a Saturday. Sounds a bit like what Moses did. Oh, what's going on here? And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and me, and one for Moses, one for Elijah, which is a stupid thing to say, but we've discovered verse 6, because he was so scared he had no idea what to say. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw no one except Jesus only. Um, I reckon that what happens here, this amazing event on the mountain, is very close to verse 38. I mean, it's not verse 38, because verse 38 is in the future when Jesus comes, but it's very like verse 38, isn't it? Because let's look at verse 38, chapter 8, verse 38. The Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with the holy messengers, the holy angels. Well, we've got all of those things, haven't we? We've got glory because Jesus is sort of dazzlingly white. It's not just glory, it's the Father's glory, because God the Father shouts, this is my Son, who you're seeing being glorified. So you've got the Father's glory. And I think you've got the holy angels, you're going to think this one's forced, but you've got Moses and Elijah, who are messengers, holy messengers. Um, it, it sounds false, but the words in Greek, angelos, angel, it also means messenger. And we've already been told, actually, in Mark's Gospel, right at the beginning, that John the Baptist is a messenger, he's an angel, um, and he's the new Elijah. So, you know, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say the holy messengers are, well, one of them we've already had identified, Elijah, the other one, Moses. Here they are. So it's holy messengers with glory that comes from the Father. This, yeah, this is arguably what the transfiguration is. It's, a, it's not the second coming. It's a second coming preview on the mountain. They, they get to see a little bit what Jesus is going to look like in the future. It's not how they're used to seeing Jesus. Jesus, the grimy carpenter, who gets into their boat with them and looks very Middle Eastern. Um, suddenly Jesus, the whoa, he's like very bright. And I'm so scared, I'm going to say stupid things about camping. And he's that, that's Moses, that's Moses. He's been, he's been dead for like a thousand years. What is going on? I mean, this is frightening. It's like a preview. They've sort of gone forward in history and seen the time when Jesus is glorified and everyone's with him and everyone he's ever lived is gathered around him. And here's the, 
it's a preview of the second coming that three of them get, Peter, James, and John. Some of you will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. It, it is the second coming, but for three of you, you get it early. Now, we keep seeing this in Mark's gospel, don't we? That the way that Mark convinces us about something that's in the future, it shows us that it's already happened. We can believe in a new creation because it's already happened in Capernaum. We can believe in a resurrection because it's already happened for Jesus. And we can believe in Jesus' second coming because it's kind of already happened. Well, a preview of it has already happened on the mountain. The transfiguration is the second coming preview. And if I'm not convincing you from Mark, then the clincher is in 2 Peter chapter 1 because you don't need to turn to it. In 2 Peter, people are scoffing about the second coming. Um, scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. I find that a very amusing verse because what would you expect scoffers to do apart from scoff? But anyway, that's what they do. Scoffers come scoffing and they say, where is this coming that's promised? You know, it's not. Every, since the beginning of the world, things have just been carrying on like they ever did. Where is he? And Peter makes the centerpiece of his argument for the second coming. The fact that he was on this mountain on this day. No, no, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Chapter one, we were with him on the mountain. Trust us, we can tell you for sure. The, the Jesus being glorified thing is not just wishful thinking. We saw it. Boy, were we scared. Moses was there. Elijah was there. Jesus was this crazy shade of white. It's happening. Now, why, why is Mark telling us this here? Because he's just given this really difficult invitation. Whoever wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Because what does it profit somebody to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels... And, you know, some of you, even before you die, are going to see a glimpse of this being true. Six days later, on the, on the Sabbath day, he takes with him Peter, James and John, and they get to witness something a bit like that. Like, it, it's real. It might cost my Iranian brothers, um, John Lucas Sajad, to have changed their religion from Islam to follow Jesus. But on the last day, it'll be really worth it. Uh, it might cost the person in church who does the job no one else wants to do, uh, looking after the crash, talking to the awkward person. It's one of the things people try to avoid, isn't it? The person at church that's hard work socially and everyone tries to find a way of being too busy with a more important spiritual job. The person who does that every week. Um, it'll be worth it. The person who in their fight for sin, to, their fight to avoid sin, has it's really hurt them to resist temptation. You know, it like, feels like cutting off an arm to battle and to keep faithful in that battle. It'll be worth it. The person who could have been really rich but wasn't because they just gave it all away, be really worth it. How do you know that it will be worth it? Well, the resurrection tells you that. 
But even more than the resurrection, the preview of the second coming of Jesus shows you that. This is, let me introduce you to a world that we don't yet see where Jesus is dazzling in his glory. And on that day, we don't want him to be ashamed of us, but to say, come and share with me in the glory that you've also died um, to bring about, to join in, to share in. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. It's not dissimilar, is it, to Jesus' call. Come, men and women wanted for difficult journey. Possibility of martyrdom, being hated, being opposed. Brutal battle with sin required every single day. Often called upon to do the um, the servant jobs that no one wants to do. Uh, not to hold on to riches in this world, but to give them away. But they're not honour and recognition in case of success, but certain resurrection and glory, as I have proved by my own death, resurrection and ascension. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing invitation. At the end of this weekend, it's fitting that we end here. We actually began here, Father, when we saw Jesus say to James and John, follow me, and they left everything and followed him. We saw him say to Levi, follow me, and he left his booth and followed him. And Lord, we hear the same call from Jesus today. To follow him is going to be costly. It's going to mean to deny self, to lose life. And we pray, Lord, that you'd keep the resurrection and the return of Jesus always in our minds that we might believe in the future, the great reversal, and that therefore we'd know it's worth losing life to save it. And it's a terrible tragedy to save life, only to lose it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of At the Castle. We hope that this teaching has helped you to better understand and apply the word of God in your life. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and family. We pray that the teachings of At The Castle will continue to help you grow in your knowledge of God's word and personal discipleship. For more information about At The Castle, please visit our website www.atthecastle.org.uk Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.